Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I'm Mecca Don here with my co-host, V. Mamba mentality for life. Today is June 18th, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. We are still quarantined and social distancing due to the pandemic, but we're doing everything that we can to bring you a show at all costs. And on today's show, we have a very special guest. You may know him as the lead writer for Sports Illustrated's Monday Morning Quarterback. His name is Albert Breer. In a very riveting interview, we talked to him about a lot of different things. We talked to obviously about his career and his rise in sports, but we also touch on some of the more sensitive issues like his controversy with Adam Jones and Torrey Hunter, uh, the Red Sox racism, and more. We also talk about the anthem, the nailing, Colin Kaepernick, uh, the prospects of him getting signed in a season with COVID, what would that look like? He also tells us some behind the scenes stories that he hasn't told many other people. V and I also hit some news and notes talking about some very important topics in sports, uh, particularly what the NBA is gonna do, what is baseball doing? All the crazy stuff happening in college sports, especially college football with Mike Gundy, Chuba Hubbard, Iowa, Dabo Sweeney, Clemson, and uh, much, much more. This is a show that you definitely do not want to miss. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Remember now that our Patreon subscribers will get our shows on Wednesdays a night early. These donations help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. And don't forget to grab some wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? podcast our next guest is the lead writer for monday morning quarterback sports illustrated and much more welcome to the show albert uh, thanks for having me mac i appreciate it uh, no problem man we're just going to jump right in man you have obviously have had a a great career you're still young and i'm sure there's a lot more that you have left to do um there have been some obviously just like everybody else there have been some ups and downs some great things some learning experiences yeah. and we wanted to kind of get the the full breadth of that and uh, kind of just get a little bit more about your story um, as we as we do this interview. Yep, you yeah. got it. And just just wanted to to talk about your start, how you got into uh, sports journalism. Um, you know, when you decided that that was going to be what what you were going to pursue pursue as a career. Sure, I, like I <laughs> I I was the kid who I, I loved I loved all sports growing up, and um, you know, like a lot of kids, I. I, uh, you know, I eventually came to the realization um, that I wasn't going to ever make a dollar playing any of the sports that I was playing growing up. Like we all kind of reached that like realization at different points. And so, you know, for me, it was like sort of, um, you know, it, it, it kind of happened by accident. Um, you know, there was a point in high school, where my grades weren't very good. And I was kind of, I would say a little bit of a jerk. And my dad recognized that. And um, you know, there were different ways that he went about trying to humble me a little bit. And one of them, you know, he said like, you need something for your college application. And so, um, you know, he said like, well, what do you think about trying to get into sports writing? And so, um, uh, you know, he uh, called someone and, you know, then like it, it one thing, one thing led to another. And, um, you know, so my junior year in high school, 
the the newspaper in town, the Sudbury Town Crier, which was just a, a small town in Massachusetts, the town newspaper there. A uh, sports editor called me and said, "How you, how would you like to do write ups for you know the football games? Because you know I was playing on the team at the time and it was easy for me to do." And um, so I did those, and I guess I did a good enough job with those where he was like, well, how would you feel about going and covering a sport that you're not playing? So that winter, I covered the girls' basketball team. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing led to another, and, you know, I started, like, I was making some money doing it. I think it was like, you know, it was like some 40, 50 bucks an article, which when you're that age and, and back then, it was like pretty good money. Yeah, mm-hmm. so like, I kept doing it. And, uh, you know, like anything else, I think it's like just, you know, you recognize that something comes sort of naturally to you. And so, you know, I, I kind of kept doing it. And then, uh, then, you know, I wind up at school at Ohio State and I can't imagine a more perfect place to learn how to cover, uh, you know, I cover sports because you're exposed to, I mean, sports that are quasi-professional, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the, the men's basketball team and the football team there are really run like NFL and NBA teams. And so it's just sort of like a, I guess it would start with, you know, just loving sports growing up, playing sports growing up. And then, you know, eventually, you know, landing in something that like I, that, that, that just, you know, initially came naturally to me. And how how did you end up from uh, coming from Sudbury to that decision to actually come to Ohio state? You guys are going to laugh about this because, because my dad went to Michigan. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's I, I'm a, I'm a triple legacy at Michigan. My dad's from Detroit. And so I had like, I had a ton of Michigan and Michigan state alumni in my family. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always thought I was going to go to a big 10 school and, you know, if you're, if you're from out here, you know, schools like that don't exist here. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like we just don't have the big, like, it's just, I mean, UMass is UMass, but it's not like, it's not like one of the schools out here, out there. And I, uh, you know, so I always, I always knew I wanted to go to a school like that. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, I applied to three big 10 schools and, uh, I think a common friend of ours, Mecca, Eddie Brown was a year older than me. Um, and I played football with him in high school and he was a, a really good player was good enough to be a priority walk on at Ohio state. And, um, yeah, you know, he just kind of kept talking to me about it and it seemed good. And then I visited and that was awesome. And yeah, it was just sort of one of those things where it was like, I knew I wanted to go to a big 10 school. And, um, and, uh, so I applied to three of them and I got into one of them and <laughs> that was the one I got into. Nice. <laughs> So talk to us a little bit too about how you got to, you know, obviously NFL Network, Sports Illustrated. How did you get into that um, from, I guess, from where you started? Yeah, it was just sort of over time. I mean, it's it's like the, you just sort of chip away at it. And it, mm-hmm. it, it, it took a couple breaks. You know, I I started um, when I got out of school, you know, I you know, you sort of want things to happen fast. And they didn't happen fast for me. Like I was covering high schools for quite some time. And, um, you know, it was a great environment. As frustrating as it was when I saw other people my age that got to cover the pros. Um, it was a really great environment for me to learn and for me to make mistakes, quite honestly, you know, and you just sort of, you go along the way and you just sort of figure out how to do things right and wrong. And, um, you know, I was at a great little paper like this. This is a very, very small paper, but, um, you know, it was near where I grew up, the Metro West daily news. And the two guys who'd come before me covering the Patriots, um, were, 
excellent, um, you know, and wound up at much bigger places. Tom Curran, who wound up at the Providence Journal and then NBC Sports, and then Mike Reese, who wound up at the Boston Globes and at ESPN now. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, so happened that I, I watched the two of them while they covered the team. Then when Mike went to the Globe, um, I wound up getting the opportunity to cover the Patriots, did that for two years. And um, I applied for every job under the sun covering the NFL while I was doing that at bigger papers. And I couldn't get so much as an interview. And that was frustrating too. Um, But my dad had a, like somebody who he grew up with. Like, like, so his, I want to make sure I get this right. His, um, one of his best friends was cousins with, Rick Gosselin, who was, you know, the, the sports was a NFL writer a long time at the uh, Dallas morning news. And, you know, basically I saw a job up there. I was so close to leaving the industry. I had taken the LSAT. I was, you know, it's just, you can only make, I I mean, I'm I'm making like $30,000 a year. I'm Mm -hmm. 26, 27 at this point. Eventually like you're, you're like, all right, like I got to do something else. And, uh, and so my dad said, well, I know this guy, um, he's like, I threw somebody else. Maybe I can give him a call. And, um, you know, he and I talk and, you know, he just says, okay, just send, instead of sending me your, like, like your, um, your, your clips, instead of sending the, the clips to the office, why don't you just send them to me and I'll walk them in and put them on the sports, right. On the sports editor's desk. Mm. So that was step one for me. Yeah. And then step two, I haven't told this story very many places publicly, Okay. Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick wound up writing me a letter of recommendation, which nice. um, I didn't ask for. Yeah. Um, but, but I talked to you know a couple of people around him about what I was doing and how I was applying for this job, and um, so I got a call from the sports editor one day, and you know he said, "You won't believe what I got," and I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "It's a letter of recommendation from Bill Belichick," wow. and um, yeah, That's so like right there. Yeah. And I mean, like, and that's what I always appreciated about Bill was like, I was, I was a nobody kid at this paper, this small suburban paper. And I guess I'd done enough in two years and, you know, he wrote the letter of recommendation. And then I I think once you get to like the point where, you know, I'm now I'm covering the Cowboys at the Dallas morning news. Once you get to that point, like now, like it's just sort of like a matter of, competing against you know whoever you're up against because once you get to like the point where you're like in a high profile paper covering a big beat like the cowboys i just feel like if you do a good enough job you'll find your way yeah yeah and that's 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 an amazing story about bill belichick and you know most people see him as kind of like this this kind of mean guy but i've had a couple friends have played with him and it seems like once you see the personal side of him he is a he is a pretty good guy and is is pretty supportive of of many people uh, behind. Yeah, him. I I just tell you, I mean, I, I can remember an interaction I had with him, and this is when I came back and when I was, you know, when I was the sporting news after I'd left Dallas, and I I was working on a big cover story on Bill, and it was like this Q and A that I did with him, and I remember somebody said said to me like like he's like William Carnegie, and William Carnegie, the 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 whole thing was like you know. I had the whole thing thought out in my head, but I didn't think like he wouldn't like understand what I was saying. So he's like, he's like Carnegie, huh? He's like, what do you mean? And so I said, well, I heard Carnegie was like this guy who, you know, like I've heard Carnegie was like this guy who was like really, really hard to work for, right? Like tough, like unbending, like very old school and difficult to work for. But then outside of work was like a great philanthropist, a great family man, very warm to his friends. And so I said that that's what I mean, Bill. 
And he didn't directly respond to that. Like he didn't directly answer the question. He just said, huh? It's like, well, mm-hmm. being compared to Carnegie is pretty flattering. So right. I think probably that's, that's like a big part of who he is, you know, is that mm-hmm. he's just, he's very good at compartmentalizing his life. Right. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit too about da- Dallas covering Dallas. Uh, you know, there's just so much media around that team and obviously they've had years of success and years of hopes yeah. and failed, you know, failed dreams. But talk to us about, about what that was like kind of that period of time when you were down there. Yeah. It's a different world. You know, I, I, um, you know, it was for me, um, you know, going from covering new England, which was like, it, I guess the best way to describe it, it was like going from like journalism, Siberia to journalism Cancun you know what I mean like where you go from having to fight for every little piece to now all of a sudden everybody's in this environment where everyone everything's in front of you Mm -hmm. and I like for me it was like it was interesting because you know I think people who'd work who who'd work in an environment like New England you would look at it and you would say, okay, like, well, I would love to have somebody swing the doors open and hand me access to everything. Mm-hmm. That's a double-edged sword because you go from now you, from, you have to fight for every scrap to now, like you're looking over your sh- shoulder constantly because the next guy's getting something too. You know, right. so you're competitive. Right. It's right. like you go from everybody's kind of scrapping for whatever they can get to mm-hmm. now it's like, everybody's like a lot of people are getting a lot of different stuff and you've got to compete and try to beat all of them. And so right. it was great for me in that it was like two very different environments. And, you know, you go from like a place where, um, you know, Bill had that whole, it was like, and it's from Parcells was the whole one voice thing. Like, again, mm-hmm. like, like everything flows through me, one voice to, you know, Dallas, where it was almost like, I mean, like I think six or seven different players had their own radio shows <laughs> right, and right. the owners available in the locker room after right. games yeah. And it was just, it was, it was definitely like a culture shock going from one to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was awesome for me because I got to see two very, very different ways of doing things. So I think now when I cover the league, it's like, I'm not really taken off. I'm not really caught off guard by anything I see. Cause I saw two very different ways of doing things. Right. Right. And so you, tra- you transitioned from Dallas to SI. Is that correct? No, I went from Dallas. So I went from Dallas to this was like the transitional phase of my career. Dallas to the Sporting News, Sporting okay. News to the Boston Globe, where I was, you know, the NFL writer, the national NFL writer there. Okay. And then in 2010, I went from the Globe to NFL Network. And I was at the NFL Network for five and a half years. And I've been at SI since, which is a little over four years now. Wow. So let's, let's transition a little bit too. So we, uh, you know, your name has been in the news recently, not necessarily maybe for reasons that you might hope so, but um, recently the Red Sox came out and essentially yeah. acknowledged um, rape that racist incidents have happened in their stadium. Troy Hunter had spoken on it, I think years back, maybe in 2017, Adam yeah. Jones had spoken on it. And your response to it was, look, I've been to, to 200 games basically yeah. in Boston and I've never seen that. And obviously you caught backlash from that. And now the, that that's come back up again, um, people are brought your name back up. And so I, I have a couple questions about it. One, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just going to be honest, when I first heard it, I was I had a very visceral reaction to it, right? Because I, you know, being black and, and, and understanding racism and how racism works and being through a ton of those same incidents in many different cities myself, I was like, there's, I don't want to have to, the onus of proof to have to be on me. Right. Um, that's just not even a fair kind of analysis. And so I, I know that you've talked to, to a lot of people since this, including my friend Eddie um, and other people, and you've gotten some probably renewed perspective. I'm curious to know 
kind of what that renewed perspective is, what some of those conversations look like and what your perspective is on it today. Well, if you guys are okay with it, I'll go back to the start, like how this sort of all began. I mean, I, 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 um, I'm very proud of where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Um, I think where I grew up gave me really great perspective. And I think like Eddie would back me up on that. Um, you know, we like, we lived in a bubble is the best way to put it. And, you know, it was very like where we went to school was, I, I think the, and the town we lived in was very, I would say very progressive, um, very educated. Like most people came from educated backgrounds. The school was a really good public school, but it, it was more diverse than most public schools. You know, that we, that there was the, the MECO program there, which, so we went to school with a lot of kids from the inner city. And, you know, I, I, I think like where I grew up fooled me into thinking that there racism was thing was a thing of the past like because we like when i was 15 16 17 years old we just we didn't we didn't look at each other that way we just didn't and like that's i mean like it's on me for not seeing past that but then i you know i went to school in ohio and i saw racism and i went to you know i lived in new jersey and i saw racism and i lived in texas and i saw racism and you know i i i was fooled into thinking like that and again, this is on me like that, like, you know, that like, I like where I grew up wasn't that way, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I said what I said, it was sort of like, I, I would say this, I would say I was trying to stick up for my classmates and my teachers and the parents, the, the good people that I, the, the good parents that were, um, around where I grew up. And, you know, I, I didn't really take into account what, other people's experiences were. And so I thought like, you know, I, I, I pride myself on being loyal to the people that I grew up with and being loyal to the people that I've been around and my friends and my family and everything else. And, you know, I, I really kind of thought to myself, like, it's unfair that like these good people are being painted with this brush. And, um, you know, I, it's a very selfish point of view, like very much like just my, my experience is everybody's experience, but I, that, that was my mindset. And, you know, so when I said what I said, um, I got a lot of really good, like pushback from, and good pushback Mm -hmm. from a lot of the guys I grew up with where they were like, you didn't see this and you didn't see this and you didn't see this. And like, we shielded you from this. And I just, I didn't know it. You know, I just didn't, I, I, I didn't under, I didn't understand what they were shielding us from, what some of these, some of the guys I grew up with were shielding us from. And I just, I was like, oh God, I made, like, like, I just thought about the mistake that I'd made. And, you know, Mecca, the other thing is like, you mentioned how you, visceral your response was. The other thing I didn't understand was how offensive it was to ask for proof. Like, mm-hmm. I had no idea. Like, I was mm-hmm. just like, like my mindset was my mindset was like before you paint everybody with such a broad brush can we see something mm-hmm. and that was a total wrong way to look at it because mm-hmm. i just didn't understand i didn't like i didn't get like that the other side of that was that like oftentimes people like like, like there's a history of not believing people when mm-hmm. they like i just didn't like i didn't like and i i wish i had a better understanding of that then but I didn't understand like, like that part of it. And when I heard it from my friends who, I mean, like, thank God I've got good, uh, like honest friends who are willing to confront me about stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I, 
I got confronted about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, after that, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry for what I said. Like I, I shouldn't have said it. Like I was wrong. And, um, you know, I, I like, I, like after like sort of when we got through that, I knew there would probably come a time when I would address it, but I just didn't mm-hmm. think it about me. That was the other, mm-hmm. that's like why, like, honestly, Mecca, like, that's why I'm like, I was even hesitant to, to come on, like why I had to think about coming on with you. And I'm always happy to talk with wh- whoever about this stuff. But yeah. I never want to, like, I don't want to make this about me. It's not about me. Like I learned and all I did was get to the right place. You know what yeah. I mean? That's the, the, I don't, I don't deserve credit for that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, I, I think, I, I want it. I wanted to actually talk about that a little bit. You you mentioned the bubble um, that you mm-hmm. grew up in, right? And you've been a journalist and you've covered Boston sports um, for an extensive period of time, right? Yeah. It seems like this is something that if you speak to enough journalists, you speak to enough athletes, it, it surprises everyone a little bit because Boston is known as kind of this East, East Coast liberal place, right? But there is a really, really dark underbelly of racism in that city that it seems like just like a lot of people who are from there, they don't want to acknowledge it, right? They don't want to acknowledge that this is happening in Boston, but history and experiences, the wide range of people show differently, right? Why do you think that is? Why is it so Mm -hmm. hard for people specifically from Boston to acknowledge that racism exists at the level it exists in that, in that town. Because I think that there are, I, I, I would tell you that there are the history of Boston. It like, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's been in a changing and evolving city. And, um, well, like, I, I think it's like, we would, we read about like, um, you know, like the bus riots in the seventies, like, right. And I'm not, I might have the date wrong. It might've been late sixties, seventies, whatever. We read about that. And, you know, I think that there was this feeling that like Boston had gotten past that. And that like a lot of the things that you saw in the seventies, um, and this is where my, I think my perception got a little warped was like my, my perception was we read about the stuff that happened and it was like it was like reading about Whitey Bulger. You know what I mean? Like it was like old school Southie, old school North End, like 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 Goodwill Hunting. Like was like that. That's a thing of the past. And if you if you've been in Boston, like you go in now and you see, and it's like the North End's not really the Italian neighborhood anymore. It's mm-hmm. like young professionals and it's gentrified. Southie, same thing. Like Southie, like I, I think like Whitey Bulger's old bar, Triple O's, is a yoga studio now. Like <laughs> it's just like it's just a it's a it's a different city than it was, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think in a certain way, the what I would tell you is like that we, we all had like I think like a lot of us growing up there, especially people who didn't have roots there. And I didn't like my mom's from Austria, my dad's from Detroit. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't have like we my parents moved there like I grew up there but like I didn't have any roots there at all like and and, like a lot of like people I grew up with were the same like it was just sort of seen as like like oh that's old Boston you know and you know what even when I got to college it's like well why don't you have that accent it's like well nobody I grew up with has that accent you know and it was just like sort of seen that way it's like like yeah that's what Boston used to be like but it's not like that anymore and I think that that was why I think that's why it's become why 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 it became it has become such a sensitive thing is because 
I think there are a lot of people who grew up in Boston, like I grew up in Boston, and we're in these little bubbles where it's affluent and it's educated and it's very liberal and left wing. And, you know, you sort of think to yourself, well, wait a second, like, this is like, like, there wasn't a single county in Massachusetts that voted for Donald Trump. That's true. Like, there wasn't a single county in Massachusetts that, so, you know, you all have your perception of what Massachusetts is, and it can fool you into thinking that what it used to be doesn't exist anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and you know, one of the things that you said earlier uh, about not making this about yourself, and I understand that, but I do think, though, that these conversations are important, particularly when, you know, we have the type of platforms that we have. And obviously you have a, a very huge platform. Right. And then also mm-hmm. when things go, you can't necessarily control what goes public and what becomes a huge story, but this is one of those things. So I think yeah. it provides a great opportunity for us, right? People like us to kind of talk through it and educate the public, right? On, you know, who people who may think the same way that you that you thought at that time and educate them on what we've learned and what we can do to kind of move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's the reason why we wanted to have you on the show. It's not to, uh, let's, let's bash Albert Breer, right? That's not productive. It's how do we use these situations as potentially learning moments um, and teaching moments for people who are listening and, and, and the next generation? So I guess the last question I have on this is kind of that, which is what is it specifically that you feel like you've, you've learned or come to understand now that you feel like um, maybe you didn't understand before and things that maybe you could do going forward to kind of um, champion or push forward some of those sort of new ideas? I, I think it's one word, Mecca. It's- it's empathy, you know, like I, I just, I, um, you know, I, it's, so it's like, and I explained this in one of my columns a couple of weeks ago. It's, uh, you know, when I, um, you know, when I turned on the TV, this is probably uh, two, three weeks ago. And, uh, you know, there's a burning car on the TV and, um, you know, my, my son's five years old. Um, I got three kids. He's the oldest. And, um, you know, he sees it and he's a five-year-old boy. So he thinks fire is cool. So he like mm-hmm. up at it and like, like, what's that dad? What's that? Okay. And I shut the TV off and I'm like, it's just, it's not good, buddy. You know, like, and I just, and like my first thought was like how much more complicated that conversation is for some of my friends, you know, mm-hmm. like how tough that conversation is and how they're immediately thinking, um, where that goes. And I, I, you know, I, I talk with, you know, I, was texting with Richard Sherman later in the weekend that became part of the column too. And I mentioned it to him and he's like, you know, we don't think about it. He's like, he's like, that's a conversation that you're preparing your whole life to have with your kids. Like Mm -hmm. you're preparing your whole life to have that conversation with your kids because you know, you're going to have it because you went through it yourself. Yep. You know? And then I think about like, you know, I just, I, I think about like, you know, some of the stuff my mom said, you know, when I was a kid, and she was like, you know, it's not easy for so-and-so in town. And, you know, I just sort of thought like, like, you know, she's like, it, it's like, you think about like, the, like the, some of the, the things that I didn't really, because of my own experience and because of the people around me, um, you know, because we had it good. Like, you don't think about like, all right, like, well, you know, this person's experience is different. And I know that that sounds weird that like, I'd have like that sort of awakening in my late thirties because I did feel that way towards people. But I think I, I think going through that, like helped me see it on a different level because I was called out and I, you know, I needed to be called out because I was, you know, I was wrong about some of those things. And I just, it's like, for me, it was just, you know, like, I don't know, it's just understanding like how, 
you know, fundamental, some of the, how ingrained some of this stuff is that uh-huh. you don't even think about, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just, I don't know. I think for me, it was like, I'm going to listen. Like, I'm just, yeah. like, like I said, this isn't about me. Like I'm going to listen. Yeah. Like, and I, and, and, and I'm going to be better. Like, I'm going to be like, again, it's not about me, but I'm going to be better for it. And if I listen, maybe the next guy will listen. And if I'm willing to kind of express my opinion, then, you know, that, and, and, and say that I did listen, then maybe the next guy will listen. And I had, like I said, like I, I put something up on Facebook. This was probably, you know, 10, 11 days ago. I just felt like the time was right to kind of explain myself mm-hmm. um, there because I, I, again, like I struggled with like when, when I was going to say something and I just, you know, I, I decided to put something up on Facebook and um, it was just for my friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I like that. That was the only intention of it, but I explained, you know, a bunch of stuff in there. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine who I'd worked with at SI, Robert Klemko, who's at the Washington Post now, said, you really should share this publicly. You should screenshot this and you should put it out there on Twitter and, you know, like once and for all. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I was like, that's just making it about me too much. So I, he's like, he's like, well, at least put it somewhere in your column. And so I said, okay, like I, I, I put it in my column and I figured if it wasn't under a screaming headline, then, right. you know, I'm putting it in there. So it's on the record and like, i my thoughts are there. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, like maybe, you know, five people read that and five people change because of that. And that's worth it because that was his whole point was people mm-hmm. can learn from that from you saying that. And so, right. um, you know, I, I mean, as luck would have it, like, you know, the, the, the Tory Hunter revelation came out a few days later. So I had that to kind of show people where I didn't have to answer every single question where I could just say, listen, this is my experience. And, you know, this is this is sort of how I had to learn, and it wasn't that I didn't know how to listen; it was that I had to learn to listen better. You know, mm-hmm. like, I, like it wasn't that I wasn't willing to listen; it wasn't that I had the wrong thoughts. It was just I was I I had to learn to listen better, and I feel like I did learn to listen better going through mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and not 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 to transition from one one controversial subject to another, but I think it's it's very important that we we talk about this, right? Because with the Monday morning. QB, you have one of the most powerful media platforms in the NFL, right? Um, and one of the biggest stories of the last few years has obviously been surrounding Colin Kaepernick um, and how the NFL has kind of handled mm-hmm. his protest. Um, and, it, and it's particularly pressing now because it seems like the NFL now is kind of doing a complete 180 in terms of their position and their stance. You're hearing more from owners Roger Goodell actually came out and, and, and said something um, about it yesterday, I believe. What do you think triggered the change? Um, and then also, it seems like your position um, has shifted a bit on this. That's, that's one part of it. And then the second part of it is I've been trying to get an understanding myself of where things got lost in translation between what Ka- – Kaepernick was saying was the purpose of his protests to what it seemed like a lot of people digested and believed his protest to be about, which was disrespecting the flag, right? Which right. it never was out. But it seems like once that got put out into the atmosphere that everyone kind of jumped on that and he kind of became a bad guy because they thought he was disrespecting the flag, which was never really his purpose or intent in the first place. And I feel like a lot of journalists drop the ball in that situation and in trying to provide the proper context. And and that's kind of what led to a lot of the division in our country. 
around this topic. Yeah, and I, I think it, that it happened in an election year probably had an effect too, and that um, you know, and that Donald Trump running for president at the time was able to use it as a red meat like sort of topic for his base. Um, you know, I think that that was probably that was probably a part of it. Um, you know, look, I I think that the the whole the way that that was the way that that whole thing happened, it was, you have Colin Ka Kaepernick, the football player over here, you had Colin Kaepernick, the activist over here. And I think that like, if you, it was hard to back then, like, I think, you know, there was just too much like trying to look at it in a straight line when it wasn't a straight line thing. And so, you know, I think that there, it was so worthy of conversation and for people to talk about it, but like everything else, like you said, V, it was like, you know, all, all right. Like, you know, so, like, how do we draw a line in the sand and everybody's on one side or everybody's in the other? And, um, you know, it sort of turned into on one side, it was a protest against police brutality. And then on the other side, it was an offense to the flag. And it was just it like, I don't think that there was enough conversation back then. It just sort of it sort of got to you know, it turned into something else very quickly. And I think a big part of that was that it became, you know, part of the discussion during the election cycle. And so there were a lot of different discussions to have within that, um, within the, 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 the whole idea of the protest as it, as it evolved over the course of that year. Um, but it just seemed like there were too many people that weren't interested in having the conversation. And I'm glad we're having the conversation now. Um, you know, but it just turned into, should he be, should he be kneeling or should he not be kneeling? And I don't think that was Colin's intent. Like Colin's intent was to start a conversation on police brutality. And instead it sort of got away from him where it just became about whether he should be kneeling or whether he shouldn't be kneeling. And that, I think that that was sort of the problem was that it became about something that it wasn't about to begin with. And how do you feel like the owners were handled it at that time, um, versus how they're handling it now? Well, I think it's, I, I would tell you that I think that the owners are very aware of public perception and I think it's a much more, it's, it's much easier for them to say something in support of Colin Kaepernick now than it was back then. And so I think you will hear more owners speak out and some already have, you know, I, like Steve Bashotti, uh, Jed York, like there, there have been, and that Jed maybe less so because he was, you know, he was the Niners owner. But we have heard some owners, you know, speak out in this subject, and um, it's easier for them to speak out now. Um, their handling of it back then, I, I would just tell you that there were a lot of football people who didn't even feel like it was. They were like, "I'm not like like I don't even want to bring it to my owner because that's going to cause a problem for me, right? Like mm -hmm. a GM or a coach or whatever." And so I think you know, it was. 32 individual decisions and for varying to a varying degree football, the Anthem protests, like in some places it was like, I can tell you there were some teams where it just wasn't going to happen. Like, like the football people could go in and say, I want to sign this guy. And it, it wasn't going to happen. Um, there were other places where you could have gone to the owner and made a case for it, but the football people just, for one reason or another didn't do it. And so like, I think it was different from team to team. And I don't think there was like a unified stance from all the owners on it. Um, but when it came to the, the Anthem protest, then that became a matter of business for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then the concern was it's an election year, our ratings are down a little bit. 
And so that's where it's sort of like, to me, from a league standpoint, it sort of spiraled into being something that, it, that, that, that I don't think Colin or Eric Reed or Kenny Stills or any of the guys who were involved intended it to be to begin with. You know, it's interesting you said something that you said that I, I want to address too is, uh, is when you said there was like 32 individual decisions. And I think that theoretically that that, that is true. Yeah. But I do think that when 32 people are kind of essentially making the same decision for the same reasons, really generally the same reasons. I mean, I know there's some football differences, but for the most part, like you said, it was they thought it was bad for business, right? And that was really, the, I think, the prevailing view for most of the owners then it essentially doesn't really become an individual decision, especially when you kind of have a monopoly on that space, right? Yeah. Now, if they're like, you know, five other leagues like this that you're competing with, then that's different. So I, I agree with you that, you know, it was, they didn't necessarily all get in a room and say, hey, we're not signing Colin Kaepernick, right? Mm -hmm. But where I think it's important to paint, to paint this particular picture is that he was boxed out essentially for the same reasons, which is that they didn't want to deal with the fallout. Right. Individually, at different levels, maybe there's a more willingness here, a little bit more less willingness here. But for the most part, that's essentially what it was, and that's why I think they ended up settling with him with the with the collusion case. Right. Not necessarily because they thought they would win or lose, but because that is essentially what the argument is. It's like you don't all. Don't well, he had some. I, I trust me on this too. Like he had some stuff they didn't want out there. Oh, like, for that's sure. Part of what settled too. Yeah. Like. And I, yeah. like that's the way the law works a lot, but like right. you know, through discovery, like like he had some stuff that I they can. were willing to they were willing to write checks to make sure that that stuff stayed where it was. Absolutely, yeah. and as and as you view it, this coming this season, how do you feel like this season is going to go? You have you know JJ Watt, you know, being vocal about it. Baker Mayfield mm -hmm. saying he's going to kneel. I mean, white players who are now saying, "Look, we're kneeling this year." How do you feel like that's going to play just with your kind of overall sense of fans and the league itself? How do you feel like that's going to play? I out? think a lot of people are going to be kneeling. Like I, 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 I remember, was this opening weekend in 2017 after Trump made the comment? It might not have been the opening weekend, but it was when Trump made the comment, the sons of bitches comment. And mm -hmm. I think that that was, because that wasn't the election year. That was 17. That was the year mm -hmm. after. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was like maybe week two or week three. And you had a massive amount of guys kneeling. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you'll see that at least the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that there won't be fans in the stands, at least in some places, might actually wind up in a weird way helping the league, if you know what I'm saying. Like they don't they, – you won't have the optics of, you know, boo, like, like, like if there are boos in a stadium, you're going to hear them. Mm -hmm. So because like a lot of these some, – some of these stadiums are going to be empty, like you, you may not need to deal with that quite as much. Yeah. Um, and then I think like a, like, I think going forward, it, it sucks, but like a lot of this is like probably up to the president. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's probably like, like how much of the, how much of an issue does this become? It mm -hmm. may be, it may be, like, it may come down like this is, I can't believe we're here in 2020. It may come down to his Twitter account. Right. Like, right, 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 like right. I mean, it, it, like that's what it might right. come down to as far as the reaction from different people. Um, you know, I think like most rational people are accepting of it and understand what it is now. Um, I mean, you know, anybody like I've talked to Nate Boyer a bunch about this and he like, like the, the, the most, the most incredible thing about the whole thing is that like, it was a green beret that eyes right. Colin to do this. Like it was like, 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 this, like a green beret. Like this isn't like, huh? That's the other thing I don't understand about this. Right. Like, Kneeling is almost a universal sign of respect outside of this scenario. Yeah. In every other, in every instance, kneeling is a, is a sign of respect. So we Unless took something, we something else. 
Mm-hmm. Which yeah. some people have a some people have a vested interest in making it something else. But like, yeah, that was the thing about it was that I mean, like Nate was very and I've talked to Nate a bunch about this. Nate was like he's been very much like like no, like like this is like like he equated, I thought this was like a really good way to look at it. He equated it to having a kid, like like the country to having a kid, right? And he's like, he's like, are you gonna like if your country is doing wrong, are you going to are you going to discipline it? Are you going to, are you going to, are you going to try to send it a message or are you going to stand by and just let it happen? Mm-hmm. He's like, it might be more pleasant for you if you stand by and let it happening, but is that good parenting? Mm-hmm. No, no. And, and so that's that what I say. I, I say that about any relationship. To me, it's the same exact thing. It's just like every relationship has its issues and you have to, are you going to deal with them? Or are you just going to let them pass? And um, you know, the way your relationship gets better is you decide to deal with the issues. It's just, it's the, uh, so yeah, I definitely understand that analogy. Yeah, and he like, and I just thought like, so the fact that it was a green beret that advised him to do it this way, um, you know, and that part, like, how quickly that got lost, mm-hmm. like that, and, and it's just, I mean, to me, it's like, eventually, you get to the point where it's probably about something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and I hate to say that, I like, like, and I, I don't like again, like, I don't want to paint huge groups of people with a broad brush, but it's like eventually after this has been explained to you so many times, you know, like that, this is not about the flag. This is not about soldiers. This is mm-hmm. not about like, you know, cause I, like, I think we all have respect for like good soldiers. You know what I mean? Like, I think we all yeah, have respect for them. For sure. Like, like it's like after you, after that's explained so many times, you just, you, I mean, you have to accept that for certain people, I guess it just has to be about something else. Right. Yeah, and you brought up the, 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 the term earlier about being in your own bubble, right? Yeah. And I thought that that was particularly interesting with someone like Drew Brees, right? Who, who's in a community like New Orleans to still kind of be disconnected, even at this point, having the teammates that he's had in the locker room makes you realize that we do live in multiple different Americas where there are mm. multiple different things that people see, multiple different things that people care about and make themselves aware of. Right. And I think the sense, the flag is supposed to represent the United States of America. So as you said, if, if one person has an issue with the country, then it's an issue for all of us. Right. And I think that sometimes we, we fail to see that and get caught up in our own bubble and the things that matter to us, our families, our friends, and, and and with Drew Brees, that was that that seemed like exactly what it was. Yeah, and you just I think everybody has like you have a certain point of view, you know, on on, on things, and like everybody sees the country through their own lens. And I mean, look, like I would never tell, like I, I wouldn't tell anybody. And this is just this is my own background. This is my mom's history, really. Like I would never tell anybody how to interpret the flag or the anthem. Like, I don't believe in forced ceremony. Like, so I, I don't like, like, I just think it's like sort of up to everybody how they interpret it. And if you like, if you go back and you look at what Drew said, it was like, he didn't like directly say like, like, and I, I you can almost see like where he didn't directly say like kneeling is disrespectful, but he implied it. Mm-hmm. And it was tone deaf of him not to realize what he was implying while he was saying it. And I think like, and I know this, like a lot of his teammates said, dude, you aren't listening. You've had, uh-huh. you've had three or four years. You aren't listening. Yeah. And so like, you know, I just think that there's, 
certain a lot of times like these things can kind of take on a life of their own and i, I just think like sometimes it's like you know you're you get caught up in seeing everything through your own lens and once you start to listen to other people um you know it can really it can change things fast there's no question about that yeah and i think we're seeing kind of changes all throughout society not just in sports but a lot more people are listening now than than they were before and that's a good thing hopefully we'll see it do you, sustain do you think colin kaepernick will be on an nfl roster this year like again that's like another one of those things that i don't think is so much a straight line thing um you know i think that there are a couple of different factors number one um I've seen the NFL manufacture guys onto rosters before. It happened with Michael Sam, right? Where the league is worried about an image thing and they'll find a player a home, right? Mm -hmm. Like that that's happened before. Um, I would not be surprised if the league office wanted to do that with Colin Kaepernick, wanted to find him a home because I think there are a lot of people who work there. There are people who work there who, who wanted him on a team three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. So like then the question yeah. becomes if they do that, does Colin see it as patronizing? Does uh -huh. he look at it and say, well, this isn't a real job. And then it's like, okay, like, well, if a team wants to bring him in and there's no guarantee he's going to make the team, like he might get cut at the end of August, he's got to go in and be a camp body and then like have a shot at making the team. And it's, we'll see on low money. Is he willing to do that? And as a uh -huh. team want to bring him in knowing like if we cut him at the end of August, like that could be a problem for us. And so, uh -huh. That to me, like all the stuff that go, like so much of the stuff that goes along with this is probably just a matter of how broken the trust has become between, between Colin and the league over the last three or four years. And so like, maybe you guys have ideas. I don't know how you get past that unless Colin Kaepernick is, you know, personally willing to say, okay, I'm going to let bygones be bygones. If you manufacture a place on a team for me, I'm okay with that. And I'm all right, like coming in for training camp and fighting for a job. And I mean, like, look, like it's his right. Like, you know, if he sees something as patronizing or done for PR reasons, after all he's been through, he's got a right to look at it that way too, you know? So I don't know. Like that's the part I think, of I think he's going to, I think he's ready to play. I think he, you know, that's why he did that workout that he tried to do. Yeah. Um, I think he's probably willing to accept maybe something that he maybe he wouldn't have been willing to accept a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. But one other interesting thing, and you probably have maybe have some insight on this too, that is that just if you take take that out of it for a second, just the the whole hoopla that comes with it, just from a strictly from a quarterback standpoint, I think he's obviously one of the best sixty four quarterbacks in in the world, America. Like yeah. I mean, that's not a question. But the reality is that Cam Newton's not signed yet. I mean, you yeah. have like you have a quarterbacks people are pretty happy with their quarterback situation across the board which which isn't which normally isn't really the case normally they're like half of the teams that kind of need a quarterback yeah um so i think that could play into it uh, a little bit as well like you said it's not really a straight line at this point it's unfortunate but you know, they the created other, that but the, that's where we are the other thing is too is like i think like the the job of starting quarterback and the job of backup quarterback those are two very different jobs mm -hmm. you know and so like i'll give you guys an example like Derek Anderson at the end couldn't really play anymore, right? Mm -hmm. But Cam Newton wanted him around in Carolina because he was a great resource to him, right? It was great mm -hmm. for him to have a, a, some experience in the room with him. Right. And then, like, he wound up getting an extra year in Buffalo. And why did he get the extra year in Buffalo? Well, because Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean came from Carolina, saw how good Derek Anderson was for Cam Newton, and said he'd be good for Josh Allen. So they mm -hmm. brought him there for a year. 
Josh McCown got the same sort of reputation. Yeah. And so he wound up, I mean, he extended his career by five or six years by being For that sure. guy. Yeah. And so like, I, I think that there's, you know, it's interesting. Like look at Denver, look at new England, look at Jacksonville. A lot of times like these teams would rather have the backup quarterback be a resource to their young guy yep. than a threat to their young guy, you know? And you see that all the time where it's like, we're all in undeveloping this guy. And it's like, we don't want to put someone else in the room where, you know, if things go wrong for him in week three, the yeah. entire locker room is going to want the other guy starting. Right. So that's that, that complicates it too. Like, I think like, you know, that's honestly, that's why Jay Cutler, Jay Cutler wound up out of the league because everybody like people thought he was a jerk, you know? Yeah. And like, and like, so like he, it, it, it turned into like, you know, he gets cut by the bears and then he just decides to, to, to go to Fox um, to sign. He signed the deal to call games for Fox because nobody could, you know, look at him and say like, that guy can be my backup. And so right. what happened? Well, then Ryan Tannehill tears his ACL in camp and Jay Cutler signs with the Dolphins. Right. So it's like, it's like those jobs are very different. Whereas like, you know, I think if a starter got hurt someone, people would be lining up for Cam Newton right now. Yeah. It's like very, it's, it's like, it's harder sometimes for teams to see those same guys as backups because they haven't seen it before. I think, yeah. I think there's, there's obviously Colin needs to look at this uh, rationally as well. Right. Which is, I might have to take a backup job. You know, Jameis Winston had to take $1 million to be the backup with the Saints. Like, the market isn't great, but the first step is just getting yourself back on a team, back in a locker room, back in a culture. And if so long as he's willing to understand that and embrace that and isn't going in with the expectation of, I was one of the best quarterbacks before I left, I deserve that same place again, um, I don't see why he wouldn't end up somewhere as a backup at least as so long as he's willing to take on you know who you know yeah. that worked out great for was teddy bridgewater mm-hmm. like teddy bridgewater got hurt not his fault gets hurt like you know his career kind of went sideways he said okay i'm gonna go take two years and i'm gonna go learn in new orleans and i'm gonna i'm not i'm not gonna be the starter in new orleans drew Brees is the starter in new orleans well drew gets yeah. hurt he plays really well um for five or six games that he gets in Boom! He's making twenty-one million dollars a year now as a yep. starter in Carolina. And, and so same thing are, happened. Same thing with Michael Vick. Perfect. Right. Same thing with Mike Vick. He came in back as a backup, and you know, then he became a starter. I mean, you know, he got his feet wet and learned, and you know, so there are yeah, can happen for that. Yeah, it definitely can. One other question I want to ask before we before we let you out of here too about the season is, um, you know, so now it's been reported that Cowboys players. Texans players, including Zeke, which he was pissed about that that was reported, um, they have they have COVID, right? And yeah. this is the middle of June, you know. And one of the things that's obviously unique about football is, and you play football too, so you know this. And any at any level is that you get in a huddle with guys, you're close to guys, not just the guys on your team, but even in, in tackling. And there, it's not a game where you can socially distance, so baseball. Speak, like baseball, right? Yeah. Um, so it presents a unique level of challenges, and I guess you know, we are kind of at a point in society where it's not that we don't expect people to get COVID. People are going to get it. The question kind of is how do we manage it and what do we do with it at when people do get it? Um, so how do you see the season even being able to be played out? Are guys going to be like questionable on Thursday because they got COVID, you know, and it's yeah. like, it's a mandatory. Is it like a two week injury if you get? Yeah. COVID? And that's the thing. Like, I, I guess the standard is like, right, like 14 day quarantine. Um, yeah. And then you got to test negative. I I would think it'd be like something like that. And you got to test negative before you come back. I, 
you know, I've, I've talked to some people about the idea of like, maybe they create a reserve list um, where, you know, teams can, you know, like just for this one year, put guys who get it on a reserve list so they can bring in guys to replace them. I think, you know, it certainly stands to reason where you're going to have, I like, I even heard this, like I heard one team had talked about the idea of putting their three quarterbacks in three separate meeting rooms. And it sounds mm. nuts, right? Like that sounds yeah. insane that you would do that. But if you really think about it, it's you like, well, if yeah. one guy gets it, you know, then the other two guys might get it. And if the other mm-hmm. two guys, if all three quarterbacks get it, you are screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, right, like, cause right. now you're bringing in somebody off the street to yeah. start a quarterback for you on the fly. And you, as you know, like at that position, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, so, no. Like there's like all kinds of these questions where it's like, it's not just guys getting sick. Mm-hmm. Like I think in, and V, I think this is what you're hitting on. Like it's not just guys getting sick. It's like guys testing positive who are asymptomatic, who you can't let back in the locker room because they could spread it to somebody else who might get sick. Yeah. And you think about all of the potential fallout, right? Starting with the competitiveness of teams. Let's say Patrick Mahomes gets gets the virus right before the AFC championship game, right? right. There's, there's, there's that impact. Then there's the fallout of, on the business side, everybody knows how big fantasy sports are in terms of the economy. Of the mm-hmm. NFL, the impact there—it's just like there's so many things and concerns that are beyond control, right? You know that the injury risk is high in the NFL, but to have something like that—that's a perfect example. AFC Championship or Super Bowl, best player on the team is out not because he has a knee injury, but he tested positive for COVID, doesn't have any symptoms, is physically fine to play, but just has oh, to. Yeah. That's that's a unique scenario right there. Yeah, there's yeah. no there's no toughing it out. I mean, that's the thing. Like there's right. no there's no grit in your teeth and going going with it. You know, if they're testing you like like again, like what the NFLPA was telling the agents on their on their call yesterday was every three days that they're gonna get tested. Mm-hmm. So they're testing you every three days, like they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be cases. There's just all mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like and like if because those locker rooms are no different than the rest of America, especially if you're not gonna have you know, the guys in a bubble, like, you know, I know that the NBA had planned to and the NHL had planned to. If you're not going to have guys in a bubble, like, guys are going to go out and live their lives and you're going to have cases. And so yeah. I, I like, I haven't heard like a plan that I think, wow, that works. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I haven't heard something that doesn't just sound off the wall and crazy yet. And I mean, maybe they get there over the next month or so, but it's definitely going to be a different season. And, um, you know, like the protocols that, that I, like, I mean, look, like what John Harbaugh said, what is this a, a week ago now? What John Harbaugh said, like a lot of coaches feel that way, like that it's just, you can't like, like the, the sport just, you, you cannot like have normal social distancing rules and all that different stuff in a mm-hmm. sport like football. It just doesn't work. No, yeah. it, do- it doesn't. So we're going to ask you uh, some couple fun questions totally off the subject before we let you out of here. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. Also, this is this has been really good. Uh, so, our first question is this: wh- Who are your top five musicians of all time? The top five artists that that get you going. So, this is going to be like I, I like I got your I think I got your text. Like I was actually like in a dentist chair when I got it because I had dentist okay. this afternoon. So, <laughs> okay. uh, I, I I like I was like God, like that's a tough one. So, like of all time, I just sort of thought of different eras in my life. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I wrote down from high school, I, I like, I love mob deep because we listened to it in the locker room before oh, game. Yeah. I yeah. love mob deep and yeah. I, and I love Biggie. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And then that era, Dave Matthews Band was another one. So those three, and that sounds like all over the place, right? So then Led Zeppelin was another. And mm-hmm. so those four. Um, and then, and like, I'm going to tell you guys, like, my wife is so embarrassed that I like them, but, or like, which I, I think everybody refers to as OAR, but they Why used to be like, embarrassed. They're, like, they're, they're sweet, man. Yeah. So I like that. Like, like she thinks, she thinks it's really bad, but I love them because <laughs> yeah. when I was in Columbus, like, so they were in school at Ohio they State. Were, they were coming up. They yeah. played like a bunch of parties that we were like, that we went to when we were in college. Like they were there. Yeah. And like, so yeah. like, they, and they, so that's got one that's got like a personal connection to me. Yeah. And then my classic would be Sinatra. And one of the okay. reasons why is that like my, first of all, he's like outrageously talented, but also mm-hmm. like I, like my, my wedding song was a Sinatra song. And so there's like, like, I don't know, like there's just something about like, you know, you know, you're eating dinner or whatever, having some Sinatra on is nice. Yeah. Like, so like I said, like I said, like I, I may be the only one, I'll listen. Nice. No, that's nice. If you ask for five, Mob Deep, Biggie, or Dave Matthews Band, Led Zeppelin, and Sinatra. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I'll take it. That's I a great list. It. Yeah. The second question is is definitely more up your alley. Your top mm-hmm. five athletes, and they can't all be from Boston. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so I'll give you. Well, I'll have one from Boston on here. Um, I do have. So I'll preface this by saying when I saw this, I sort of thought, okay. Like this is like an in the moment thing, right? Like so, like for example, like if I loved OJ growing up, I'm not gonna say I didn't love him because yeah. you know of what happened. Like like obviously, I think different than some people now, but yeah. uh, but yeah, like I like so the athletes that I put down for when I was growing up, I I always sort of liked the bad guy, um, uh, and because you know, like I said, my dad's from Detroit. I mm-hmm. really love the bad boy Pistons. Mm-hmm. So Isaiah Thomas is on my list. Mm-hmm. Um, I have Steve Eiserman, similar reasons. My dad being from Detroit, like that was my Me guy. In hockey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jim Kelly in football. I loved his toughness. Like I just, mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, when I was really young, I played a little quarterback. Wasn't, you know, I didn't last all that long, but I love Jim Kelly for his. One of the more underappreciated quarterbacks, I think, even though uh, he's a Hall of Famer. But. Yeah. Like, and I love the fact that he was like a, he was recruited as a linebacker. You know what I mean? Like, I love yeah. that. Like, they, like, he was recruited to Penn State to play linebacker. So, yeah. for Jim Kelly, Steve Eiserman, Isaiah Thomas, Nomar Garcia Parr is sort of an under the radar one mm-hmm. now, but he was such a big star for like a short period of time. Like, yeah. I loved him in the moment. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then my fifth in the moment. And I think, like, I think, or you guys, you guys might be. I'm. I just turned forty. You guys are around the same age as me. Yeah, we're a little bit younger. Yeah. Okay. We were at. Ohio, we must have been at Ohio State at the same time. It's Probably. Yeah, I graduated in '02. Yeah. Yeah. We graduated, we graduated yeah, the same year. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so you guys will appreciate this one because I. This is like one guy I don't think the kids have a real appreciation for. Mike Tyson. Like oh, when yeah. he when when I was a little kid, I would like I remember my dad waking me up. We were we were over so we were visiting my my mom's family over in Europe, and um and so I remember my dad waking me up at like four a.m. to watch Tyson Spinks. This is eighty eight, right? Yeah. And it was it was like this is the fight of the century, and I remember I loved watching Tyson fight, right? And it was like, and and people don't remember Michael Spinks was like this was like maybe like the first real guy who like like this guy's got a shot to beat Tyson. Mm-hmm. Woke up at 4 a.m. I'm eight years old, right? Like, I, like, like, this is like, oh my god! Like, I, my dad would like, I can't believe my dad's letting me do this. All that different stuff. 
knocked him out in 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I remember like, that like it was yesterday. That's and so I, I will not like I'll tell you what, like I don't think I don't think anybody I think it's very hard for people to understand the level of shock. Like because when I say like the Buster Douglas thing was the, the I, I still think it's the greatest upset of my of my lifetime yeah, in yeah, any yeah. sport. Yeah. The shock of that that Mike Tyson lost to some guy, and maybe you'd heard from heard of him because I know he's a Columbus guy and everything yeah. else. But like, how did he lose to Buster Douglas? And it yeah. was never, and it was never the same after that. No, like, if you started watching Mike Tyson after after 1990, you don't know who he was. No, no, you, yeah. you don't. What? You don't. Yeah, that was a, great, was- a lot. A lot of people say it, it it coincides with Cuss dying. It's kind of the where we lost. Yeah, him. I remember hearing that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but he was like, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I sort of like, I. That's the other thing I don't think we have back yet. Like, I the the buildup for a big fight back then, like in the eighties, yeah. like, like it's just, it's not the same anymore as well, it well, was. The other thing too is it's kind of like it's there's oversaturation of content now too. So right. you know that happens even with television shows and stuff like the TGIF. You know, I'm sure you were a TGIF guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It, was, it was it was Full House, Family Matters. What else? Yeah, Boy Meets World. Yeah, was uh, step by step on that was that yeah step, 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 step by step yeah, <laughs> yeah. and you know that was that was Friday night you couldn't stream it you couldn't watch it all the episodes in one one day you know what I mean it was different it was a different time period back I had then, to watch so. it live like if you didn't like I remember like you get mad like like my kids get mad like the internet goes out and it's like the world's coming to an end like right, I remember right. I remember back in the day like when you had to you tape your shows. And you'd be so pissed at your brother if he changed the channel, like right, after right, he did right, the recording, right. and it'd be all set up, and then someone came in and changed the channel, like so yeah. So. Yeah, these kids are growing up in a totally different world. No question, but Albert. That's been great. This has been great, man. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pilot Boys Podcast. This has been been really good. Um, obviously, we're gonna you know keep watching you, supporting you. It was funny that we went to school. This is the same school, the same time. Didn't Crazy. know each other. Didn't cross paths until today. Really. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm sure we'll we'll continue to cross paths. So keep doing what you're doing. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate All right. it. All right. Take care, man. Love the Pilot Boys podcast. Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as one dollar. We have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast, episode 33. Time to hit some news and notes. V. Let's get it. Let's start with the NBA, man. Um, I just, I'm just gonna ask you, man. Should, should NBA players play? You know, we uh, we put up a poll on our on our um, on our podcast page and on Twitter, and you know, there's it was split. It was more people said that they understood why the players are not playing, but some people obviously don't understand. What's your perspective on it? Well, I mean, I hear what the players are saying, and I understand it's a question that I ask myself. The people who are on the the other side of this thing, right? Um, specifically with the NBA, with over eighty percent of the players being um, African American, um, that that thought process of if we play, it's going to distract from issues that are way bigger than what happens at the end of a basketball game. Um, I think Lou Williams is is the guy that I like in terms of how he he communicated it the best, which mm-hmm. is. There are bigger fish to fry, essentially, mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, in sports, what's going to happen was when sports comes back, everyone's going to get get a six-pack of beer, mm-hmm. and it's going to be back to that societal norm we have of 
always seeking distractions to avoiding to avoid dealing with real issues. So mm-hmm. from that perspective, I, I, I can completely understand it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that it's it's kind of short-sighted to look at it that way, specifically from an NBA player's perspective, right? Is it's like this is an opportunity um to use your platform to focus on the issues, right? Um there are ways that the players can work together to make sure that the issues are at the forefront and the games are secondary, even in how they conduct their interviews and what they want to be asked about, what questions they want to answer. The NBA is a huge platform. It's a global platform that can generate a lot of attention um, toward issues. And I do think part of the reason, you know, some players want to shirk this part of it, but part of the reason that you are paid millions and millions of dollars is that to use your platform um, to help other people. And I think um, those that feel that obligation, I think should understand that playing probably has more benefit than not playing. Well, so, so I think that where I disagree with you is that I think that this analysis is a, is somewhat of a personal analysis. And I think that um, reasonable people can disagree in terms of whether or not what's what's more valuable in their lives in terms of where their, their time is being allocated toward between, you know, kind of fighting the way that they're fighting now and going back and fighting through the NBA platform. And, you know, people could say, look, we did that before. We I wore I can't breathe shirts. We we did things and nothing really changed. So that even though there might be more quote unquote visibility because, you know, Kaepernick knelt and this thing still didn't change. And that was the number one story every day. It's like they might be able to say, look, there are other ways that I think that we can affect change, like what we're doing now, like protesting, like, you know, giving to different causes and being active in the street. Somebody mentioned the other day, which I thought was interesting. They said Pat Tillman left to go fight for what he believed in and he was celebrated as a hero. And just because it was on different soil, that doesn't mean that the, um, that type of cause isn't the same. So I think it's a very individual thing, right? And, yeah, if, and you, think, if, if you don't want to play, then, 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 then don't play. If it's too emotional for you to play or you're worried about COVID, then don't play. Well, not right? just emotional and not just COVID, but also saying, listen, I think that we need to take this time out. And like you said earlier, the kind of part about Lou Williams and, not have these distractions and focus on the issues at hand, not welcome these distractions and have the, the stories that start dominating the news cycle be, yeah, NBA players are back because that's what's going to happen. Yeah, you, you can use your platform and, you know, they'll do a moment of silence before every game and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's going to be like LeBron and, and Kawhi are going to meet in the finals. And so, I again, I, if, well, if, well, I think it, it, it highlights what the, what, the reason that change is so difficult in America is in a very, from a very small scale, which is that it's hard to get everyone to kind of agree with the same line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to know what the line of thinking is. I think it would, I think all the players want change to happen. I think generally in America, most people want to see some change happen, but it's difficult for any of us to know what we need to do and how to be, create a cohesive stance because you can have LeBron James on one hand is an example of someone who is using his platform, but still gets the, it's still going to get the job done when he has to do his job. Right. And that's, that's the conversation. What obligation do you have to your contract? What obligation do you have? Are you essentially saying that we're willing to walk out and forego our salary or do you want 
all the benefits that come with an NBA player. No, I think they're different. willing to forego their salaries. I think they're just yep. saying, let's shut down the season. You know, yep. let's let's we'll pick up next year. You know, and um, so you know, th- you're right. There, there is. It's going to be hard to get a consensus on that type of thing. Um, but I do understand somebody's individual feeling of saying, listen, I think what we're doing right now is working, and I don't want to change courses, and I'm willing to sacrifice. Um, you know, my season and, you know, uh, some salary for this particular. Yeah, it would would be great if they could, they could come together. Right. The reason that that Muhammad Ali was able to make his stance is he didn't have a team of Mm -hmm. 10 other people that not to say his decision was easy because it was, I I don't even want to use that term. Nobody listening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a different, analysis right they're talking about how the lakers there's division in the locker room you have dwight howard coming out and being outspoken in terms of not and he articulated it very well right yeah Um, which was surprising for me because i haven't i haven't heard um dwight howard ever ever speak like that on an issue like this right um but you know what 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 sacrifice are you willing to make right Mm -hmm. that's the question that i think a lot of Americans in times of struggle need to ask themselves, what sacrifice are you willing to actually make? Mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali was willing to go to jail. And this is, you know, and I, I hate to say this, this is why sometimes I get a little bothered when the comparisons are made between Colin Kaepernick and, and Muhammad Ali, because I think the sacrifices aren't even in the same playing field, but it doesn't mean that Colin Kaepernick isn't, wasn't acting in the spirit of what Muhammad Ali did. Well, I think I think part of this too, and this is the last thing I guess I'll say on this is 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 everybody's analysis is different, right? So everybody's disposition, everybody's cares, desires, and wants, everybody's perspective on what's happening, what's working, what doesn't work is different, and that's why it's. And then everybody's financial situation, you know. I mean, you can yep. tell a guy who's making a hundred million dollars a year, like, okay, sit sit out this one. It's easy for Dwight Howard and Kyrie Irving to say it; they're worth over a hundred million dollars, right? Yeah, and not to say that they're the only guys that are saying that type of stuff. But it, again, all of those things kind of go into the analysis, right? What's your disposition? What's your, what's your exposure to these issues? What, how much do you care about these issues? What's your going on with your family? What type of debt are you in? You know, how much years do you have left to play this game? All of those things factor in individually. Yeah. And that's why I just look at it as a very individual thing. Yeah. Uh, moving on to the, let's talk about this quote unquote Ohio state waiver, right? That's been making news. Um, you know, the, the, the essentially has these players, the, that want to come back for voluntary workouts, football players sign something. This is, and Gene Smith refers to it as a pledge, which is essentially here are all the risks of COVID. Do you agree to, to essentially accept all of the responsibility of taking care of yourself um, and doing what's necessary to take care of yourself and take care of the team, socially distancing, wash your hands, so on and so forth. Um, he, he said he doesn't view it as a legal waiver. And honestly, as a lawyer, I don't see this reducing anybody's rights, but um, the, the flip side is that, well, it says that if you don't take this pledge, then you could be restricted from certain activities, um, be kept away, um, but you won't lose your scholarship. To me, I don't think it has much legal teeth at all. I think it's, I do, I do see it more of as, as a pledge, um, because it's just, it's basically saying, listen, this is, this is, we have a serious thing that's lurking, a pandemic. We want you to pledge that you're going to do the right things. If you're not, if you can't commit to doing the right things, then we don't we don't want you on campus because that increases the risk for other people. To me, that seems fairly it seems reasonable, um, so long as there aren't real uh, legal consequences. And I don't see any real legal consequences here. What were your thoughts on it? It's been big discussion 
I mean, I do think it's it's very important, you know, and I'm seeing it. Um, a lot of our friends and associates that are athletes um, tend to start to believe that they're healthier than the rest of us, mm-hmm. right? By virtue of how hard they work out and how hard they train, that COVID is a real thing. But because I'm an athlete and I'm in pristine shape. It's not just, it's not just athletes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people are It, it is, but I'm speaking specifically yeah. as to the – right the topic of this discussion, which is this pledge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for, for college athletes, yeah. um, they're young too, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you have to tell them what their risks are and, and be very clear in telling them what they can and can't do, right? Yeah. Because if you leave it in gray area, that's what, what college kid is, is always behaving perfectly and not taking risks and not taking chances, right? Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately a lot of this does come down to the country that we live in, right? Mm -hmm. The country we live in is everybody has to always worry about their legal liability. Mm -hmm. Every situation we are in the, everyone sues for everything in this country, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Billions, trillions of dollars in, in, in the legal profession. And unfortunately, you know, you can't worry about the PR element of this if you're an institution that's trying to protect itself, especially multi-billion dollar colleges and corporations, they have to take these steps and they're not always the most popular <clears throat> steps, but yeah. they must be taken because one lawsuit, you know. Well, well they're actually, they're actually, there's another step too. And that's why I say, I, I, I don't even like calling it a waiver because there's a waiver essentially would say this, which is actually what Trump is making people sign who are coming to his uh, rally which is that essentially if I contract COVID here, I agree to not sue you. I understand the risk and I'm assuming the risk. That's not in that document. Now, even if someone says, oh, it's kind of implied, well, it's not in there. And that, you know, that's not something that would, I don't, I believe would hold up in court. Um, And I do agree with you that, you know, um, for a lot of people who are pushing for us to get back to normal and for things to start happening, because of the way the legal system is set up, because of the windfalls that you know juries give sometimes in some of these situations, if you're gonna set, if you're gonna you know bring people back into something, and you're essentially assuming all of the risk of COVID, which is an unknown thing of how how it can spread, even if you do all of the guidelines and you do all of the wiping downs and all of the distancing, then you follow all of that. People can still catch it, but you assume all of the risk. If someone catches it there. Yeah, I mean who, that's that's gonna be crippling for this business, yes, you know, crippling for these businesses. So I don't look at it. I do look at it more, this particular one more as a pledge. I don't see um, the issue with it so much, but I do think that there's a bigger issue that uh, is not, and doesn't just relate to Ohio State, which is that, you know, these guys, you know, are you having all your students sign this? You know, is everybody that comes back to campus have to sign it, or is it just the athletes? I mean, look, look, are the fraternities going to get shut? Because this is there is risk. Large gatherings happen at college campuses, specifically Mm -hmm. at a campus with fifty thousand plus students, like Ohio State, right? And do they all have to sign it? Are you going to shut down all the bars? Are you going to are you going to make them all sign it? I think that's a good question. Are you going to make every student that comes back to campus sign this pledge, or is it just restricted to the athletes? Because if it's just restricted to the athletes and particularly football. Then now you're talking about you're acknowledging that there are different stats. They're not really yeah. the same. The and, same. And and know? that's also what's problematic about this, right? Mm-hmm. The reason that you're coming up with this, all of this, the backdrop is not, oh, we're trying to 
protect everyone. It's we're trying to make sure there's football, right? And I, I, let's just be frank. They're taking all of these steps, jumping through hoops to make sure and figure out for there to be a way for these college teams to go out and generate millions of dollars in revenue for the universities. There's no dodging that that topic and and and, and not speaking about it, frankly. And, and what make, makes it more difficult than the NBA conversation is these guys aren't foregoing salaries. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're probably foregoing their opportunity to yeah. use this year to get to the next level. To elevate their status. Yeah. yeah. And and speaking of, uh, of kind of this issue with sports, uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, basically said on Mike uh, to Mike Greenberg the other day that he's not confident that there's going to be a, a major league baseball season. There have been a number of different scenarios that have been floated around about, you know, a 50, 50 game season. Um you know, there are obviously issues with pay on both sides. A lot of people think that both sides are kind of the result of the both sides, meaning the players and the owners, are a result of this kind of uncertainty. What, what's your take on, on baseball? Baseball has been getting a lot of things wrong for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? So to give them the benefit of the doubt, I mean, I think that if it's not safe enough to play, then the commissioner taking this stance is – an important and powerful one, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's because of some sort of ineptitude or inability to come up with um, a solution, which it would seem would be easier in a sport like baseball than it is for the NBA, I think the Premier League is coming back, soccer is coming back. For you to come out and say that there's there's doubt um, and it's unlikely to happen, Considering the landscape of everything else, maybe they come out, baseball comes out being the smart ones here that didn't didn't have a season and were willing to sacrifice a year for the long-term gain. And we see all these other leagues just be flooded with cases and, yeah. and terrible things happening. But it's like your job as the commissioner of baseball is to try to make sure that your sport continues, right? Get, get, listen, baseball of all the sports is a sport. If if sports are going to come back, baseball is of all the sports is a sports that could easily be done. Minimal amount of contact. Guys are already socially distanced in the outfield. You can have guys socially distanced in the dugout. It's not a big deal. They don't have to huddle. They don't have to give high fives at the end of the game. You know, there'll be maybe a collision here or there, you know, a guy sliding in the second base. But for the most part, guys are not going to be close to each other. And it literally seems like the perfect kind of scenario. Uh, obviously, there are traveling issues and there's trainers and there's all that type of stuff. So you do have to figure things out. But there seems like the perfect kind of sport to where you can figure this thing out. And yeah. if other people are figuring it out, then you need to figure it out. And at the end of the day, that's why how I feel about it. I feel like, you know, just quit being idiots and just figure this shit out and get and get back to playing. Because at the end that, of the day, that's what I, it seems like they just haven't haven't come up with a good plan. Right? Yeah, and I think you've said this before, um, not necessarily on today's show, but just like about the kind of tone deafness or inability to kind of read the room sometimes and people becoming self-absorbed. And then also one thing you said was that baseball, you know, baseball is in trouble in terms of its brand. And this is just not something that's, this is something that would just makes it even worse. You know, if you, yeah. if they don't figure this out, you know, baseball has, is in really big trouble. Yeah. Um, let's move to the NFL. Um, you know, we, we obviously talked to, to Albert about some of these issues. Um, you know, the Cowboys Zeke was announced as one of the guys that's tested positive um for coronavirus and a few cowboys and a few texans and i'm sure this won't be the end of it um and it's not surprising to me um 
that this has happened because many people in different segments of society are catching it. But what's particularly unique about football, especially as we approach, like you said, we're in the middle of June right now. And as, yeah. as, as we approach this training camp, which typically is like four to five weeks from now, how are you going to have it? I don't even understand how you're going to have a season here um, unless you're willing to say COVID or no COVID, we're still practicing. You're still practicing your plan. The only way you're sitting out with COVID is if you're sick. But you can't really do that because of, because of the level of contagiousness that we believe COVID has. So that means that you got to kind of quarantine guys for 10 or 14 days if they catch corona. And what if you go to training camp and 30 of guys on your team catch corona? I mean, how, not to mention what happens when you start playing against other teams and all the other risks that come with that, traveling and trainers and um, you know, tackling other players. And it's just a game that people are very close to each other. I, I don't really see how, how at this stage, you know, I have very, very, it looks very bleak to me. What are your thoughts? Well, everything looks kind of bleak, right? In the sense mm-hmm. that it doesn't seem like America is doing anything right when it comes to this illness. Mm-hmm. And that's just being honest, right? Yep. No reason we have the healthcare system we have. We have the researchers that we have. We have the infrastructure and st- stability in government that we have um, overall, right? And how it's structured. Not saying there aren't unstable parts of it. <laughs> <but> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the fact that we have the most cases, right? Yeah. Um, in the entire world doesn't add up to me. It shouldn't be the case. Mm. There was a time I feel like we would look at that and and take more pride in trying to make sure that that's not happening. And I think the players getting Corona is a direct result of how we've re quote reopened, right? Mm-hmm. We reopened without the biggest concern about this illness, honestly, wasn't even the fatality, right? People get lost in that. It was the hospitalizations, our hospital mm-hmm. capacity, mm-hmm. not being able to handle it. And how quickly it can spread. So there's also this risk that, Yes, you know, we hear the more and more we hear about football players who are in great shape getting this illness, the the concern that I have is the more we hear about them and thankfully we haven't heard about anything bad happening to a specific player yet. But what happens if a big time player dies mm-hmm. as a result of getting corona too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. These are yeah. all all things that we as a country need to understand and we all want football back, right? Yeah. But let's just be honest and have the honest conversation. You've brought this up several times. Football is not the easiest sport to be playing when a virus this contagious is going around. It's the worst and possible sport. And you don't know. Every doctor we've said, we don't know which person is going to get it and face the potential deadly consequences. Mm-hmm. So until or, we pa- know, or pass it to somebody else, which even if all, even if we say, look, all of them are healthy, right? Just them having it now reintroduces it to many other, potentially many other segments of society, including their family and friends and people at the grocery store and whatever. And then it just seems like it's a never ending thing. So I, I, I'm very skeptical. Albert said, you know, he's more plugged in than we are in terms of those circles. He hasn't heard anything that sounds like, okay, yeah, that's going to work. Right. Um, You can't put masks on guys, right. They need to be able to breathe on the field. You can't socially distance. So none of the precautions that you're telling the rest of society to take, are you actually able to do yeah. in football? Like baseball, you can, but in football, you absolutely cannot do that and not have this type of game. 
and have the type of game that we're used to. So it doesn't seem like it makes sense. That's why even the being prepared for a season is great. Mm-hmm. But it's I think a lot of people really do think that because colleges have started practicing again and because NFL teams are probably going to have training camps that this issue is behind us and it's not mm-hmm. it no just, it's not it even six players i think six players at the university of houston football team tested yep. positive yeah and you so, can't you can't have you can't so you're have quarantine quarantine people all through the season like mm-hmm. like you said before like okay so we're like at the super bowl and uh you know patrick mahomes gets the coronavirus three days before the super bowl what, yeah what, and, what, and, like, and let's let's talk about what this is going to do to two of the biggest economies in sports, sports betting and fantasy sports. Mm-hmm. It completely flips those absolutely those things upside down, right? And yeah. It's, it's just the thing that I cannot understand. I understand like we got to open up our economy and stuff like that, and we've got to get back to what makes America work. But we do not have a reliable treatment, and we do not have a vaccine. So if we don't have a reliable treatment or a reliable vaccine with a highly contagious and deadly disease, I don't care what anyone's telling me personally. Mm-hmm. I'm staying socially distant Yeah, yeah. Un- yeah. Un- until those things I'll, I'll interact with yeah. people more, but I'm yeah. going to do it six feet apart. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get engaged in social activities that I don't need to because right. why take the risk when you know that if you get something, you have no options really yeah. except for yeah. hope. And that's that's I think this is something that we're gonna see play out. It's gonna be a honestly, it's gonna be a shit show this year. This fall, we talking about football just from a football standpoint. It'll be a shit show in many other ways too. But from a football standpoint, it's gonna be a complete shit show because the other thing too is there's not a necessary uniform policy on how these things interact. For example, what so what the state policy is or local policy is in Texas may not be the same as it is in Columbus, which may not be the same as it is in in. Uh, East Lansing, you know what I mean. So, and you're traveling, and it's just it's just going to be it's just going to be. Let, let let me ask you this question: What do you think the fallout? Let's say everyone says, you know what, the risk isn't worth the reward. All the sports kind of say we're not going to have a season this year. Mm-hmm. What do you think the fallout of that will be? Or could See, it's be? a good question. I think we we've, we've gotten a little bit of insight onto what that is already, right? Because of NBA canceling, baseball not starting, the Olympics being canceled, right? We've seen some of that. Yeah. But football is a different beast. Football is a different beast. And I, you know, and you and I talked about this and we'll probably do it at some point in the future talking to a psychologist um, about this as well. But the, the, you know, a lot of people's lives revolve around football season and not yeah. just not just socially, I'm talking about from a business standpoint too, you know, whether it's, whether you sell t-shirts or, you know, um, you know, any type of paraphernalia or anything like that, even like gas stations and restaurants in the area that like, yeah. that's their high season. Like there's a lot of even ancillary. The economy is um, very dependent on our, on entertainment. Big time. So I think the fallout could be real because what, what stimulus are you going to provide for that? Yeah. You know, um, how are you going to target who are the people that need help as the result of football not happening? And then not to mention the actual real issue like depression. And, you know, it's the one thing that people look forward to in their, in their lives and not having that escape regardless of the way we think that's the way it should be. That's the way it is. 
I think it's a tremendous, tremendous fallout. And if you're talking about college football and pros, mm, 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 that's that's like that's like taking away some people's livelihood. At least that's how they'll view it. And you know, I think some people will be able to rationalize it a little bit because they've seen, you know, it happen in other sports. But I also think there's a growing chorus of people who are saying, listen, man, coronavirus is serious. I get it. But there are other things that are serious, too. And, you know, driving to a fucking game is probably more serious, you know, dangerous than Corona. And I'm not saying yeah. I agree with that, but I think there's a growing chorus of people who are saying that. And so they're not also. It's one thing if people understood and agreed and said, oh, man, this is just a shitty situation versus people saying this. I don't agree with this. I don't agree with your analysis. I don't agree with your interpretation of this data. This is bullshit. And you shut it down. That's that's two totally different and, things. And I think I think it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier. Right. Is it's like what Lou Williams said is it seems like. The disadvantage and the advantage for a lot of the causes that are happening in the protests is that they're able to generate a different level of attention right mm -hmm. now, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it could be powerful for us as a nation to say, you know what? Part of the reason we're in this mess is that we, we, don't, deal with, we, don't, we don't deal with any of our issues. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we, just, we just keep pushing for that excuse or that distraction away from actually tackling yeah. problems and i think that the sports organizations could really set a powerful precedent by saying you know what there are bigger issues right now mm -hmm. i think this is what Kyrie and lou williams and and white howard are saying let's join that course and fix these issues yeah and then let's earn sports back let's earn yeah. the right to have all this joy and and all these distractions when we when we fix these issues and and, and also let's let's um let's try to make the world a better place for the people who you're enjoying these sports off of right which are these players who, who are majority yeah. black and i think that's actually a good segue into our next thing which is kind of about what's happening with college sports and these college teams you have the thing that's happening with Dabo wearing the football matters shirt the same day black lives matter thing was going you have the confederate flag people coming through clemson when they're trying to do black lives matter protest you have Mike Gundy uh, from Oklahoma State, the head coach, wearing the OAN shirt um, that got publicized and that Chuba Hubbard, his running back, responding to it, saying he's not standing for it, and then them releasing some video saying they're going to work together. You have the Iowa strength coach um, who's been fired, who, you know, I guess apparently has a history of, you know, demeaning and, and um, kind of treating his black players a certain way. And then Zach Smith told us about something that happened at Utah that kind of got swept under the rug, and then... There's just a lot of different stuff happening. You have the University of Texas uh, athletes who are saying, listen, unless you guys change this, this, and this, remove this song that you make us sing, get rid of these statues, we're not, we're not, we'll play, but we're not going to recruit, we're not going to do anything. What do you kind of feel about this movement from the college ranks uh, that we're seeing kind of all over the country? I think that we talk about it all the time, is the way change is going to really, really happen is by these players taking stands, mm -hmm. right? Figuring out where they can put the pressure mm -hmm. and squeezing, yeah. right? Um, as much as we all want to talk about it, the end of the day, what's affecting college athletics is directly affecting these players and the people in these programs. They 
they have to lead the charge, right? Mm -hmm. And now that they're leading the charge, they need to find support from the people who fight for these causes mm -hmm. every single day and guiding them. I mean, what the players of Texas did, yeah, that's just amazing, right? Understanding yeah. like, look, you guys are going to sit here and expect us to come to this school with Confederate soldiers statues up, mm -hmm. plus right? singing songs, song singing, like singing, songs singing yeah. racist songs. And then, you know, and for to say, oh, this isn't a problem in college sports. Look, either there's a power structure in college sports that's either completely ignorant or also harbors these thoughts, mm -hmm. right? They yep. want these, they don't care about these players beyond the fact that they can help them win some games and help them get bonuses. Because mm -hmm. if you're Mike Gundy, you have, you cannot wear an OAN t-shirt. Mm -hmm. You cannot hold those type of views if these are the players you're coaching. Mm -hmm. It doesn't vibe. And that's mm -hmm. what, what we're starting to see here is that there is a lot of ignorance, a lot of racism. Mm -hmm. It just gets swept under the rug because these players want to play football. Yep. And and these coaches want to keep the money train rolling and keep their careers going, but they don't they don't care, and that's what's really sad. Well, the other thing too is that, and I feel like from a discipline standpoint, the you know some question someone asked me, well, why don't you think that these assistant coaches and other people are being disciplined? It's because any type of discipline that you that you do, it it brings unnecessary well what they, we would call unnecessary attention to your program, or at least what they would call unnecessary attention, and then that could potentially have questions people start questioning your culture and then that people can start using that and recruiting against you so instead what they do is try to deal with certain things internally and for some some things you can deal with internally not every issue has to necessarily be dealt publicly mm -hmm. but there are some issues that you can't and like you said um you know people talk about freedom of speech you know with the oan shirt and all that type of stuff i said look you can do whatever you want to do but you're not free from consequences that's the thing that i think people always kind of forget about the freedom of speech thing it's like yeah say what you want to say but they're they're do what you want to do, but there are consequences for that. What I hate about that Oklahoma State situation is that they made Chuba Hubbard kind of feel bad for what he did, which yes. he did nothing wrong. No, right? he didn't. And and it, it just goes to show you, it makes you question, okay, it's great. Gunny came out and made that statement, but I don't believe Hell that, no. anything he's saying, no. right? You Because no. for Chuba to feel that way, somebody, an adult, impress that on his brain not right? only that but people someone else i think bomani jones said this and i agree is that this wasn't just chuba reacting to him and sure yeah he's seen things and heard things and, and experienced things there he's been there you know what i mean like that's not like if, if if your coach does something that's totally out of character and you're like oh my god and it's the first time you've ever seen any hint of that then you probably would handle it differently but the reason why he had that visceral reaction is because he knows he's seen yeah. things and again, he handled it publicly because it was public. You wore that yeah. shirt in public as a public figure, and it was posted publicly for everybody to see. So now you've been put in a tough situation as a 19 or 20-year-old kid. And again, someone could say, oh, it's just a shirt, it's just a shirt. Okay, to you, maybe it is if, just a shirt. If Chuba hadn't done this, we would it wouldn't have been as big of a story. And that's why what he did needs to be applauded. Not, Absolutely. He shouldn't be made to feel bad about that. And then, you know, going back to what you were talking about with the Football Matters t-shirt, it's like, mm -hmm. how can you, like, how can you actually do that at a time like this, right? It's unbelievable. Like, to to have that type of willful ignorance. Lack of just complete lack mm -hmm. of awareness. I mean, obviously the, the the worst is that it was deliberately done to be spiteful. Yeah. We can't ever assume that because we don't know. 
But at best, and like you just said, it was complete willful ignorance and, and just unawareness. Like, do you not see what's going on out in society everywhere in this country right now in the streets? Like, there are riots and protests happening every single day. And every single people, every are, people are people are showing up hung from trees again. Yep, exactly. You know? And you wear a football matters T-shirt. So I think that what I what I like about this time period. Uh, obviously, it's a very scary time period, and it's dangerous. People are dying, you know, and like you said, people are showing up, being hanged across the country. People are getting killed, you know. There's, there's people are being, there's, there are clashes happening. But what I do like about it is that it's forcing people to reexamine, not just symbols, but structures, right? And you know, and and if you have, if your house is not clean, you know, and a lot of our houses aren't clean. This is not us standing on a high horse, right? But, the, but when you hold certain positions of power, you have a, a totally different level of responsibility. If you're a coach or administrator or an AD or you're a CEO or whatever, your responsibility is different. And what, hap- what happens when a player does something that brings dis- dishonor to the school, right? Mm-hmm. They suspend all connection to them. Yeah. There, there are real consequences. We mm-hmm. saw recently the, the ban on Reggie Bush got lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, but when coaches do it, what are the what are the consequences going to be mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. Daniel Sweeney and Mike Gundy beyond just coming out and having to apologize? What is it? Why is it that you can have monuments to racism and those people don't pay a price for their views and what they did the same way that a player gets held accountable for taking a couple thousand dollars? Yeah. To help his family out. Well, I think that I think, and the, you touched on you touched on this, and this is kind of my, my button on this one. Is you touched on this the awakening of of players, and it's not just the awakening because I think there have a lot been a lot of players that kind of have felt certain ways, but it's the empowering, and that's part of the, what's happening collectively. There's a collective energy in society right now that has empowered a lot of different people to speak up on things that they ordinarily wouldn't have spoken up on, not because they didn't bother them, but because they now that they feel like they have power and support. And that, again, just speaks to kind of what the issue of the NBA is, is that they're saying, listen, part of this collective empowering that we're doing is forcing a lot of people to pay attention to a lot of things. And we don't want to detract in any way, shape or form from that, because that could start to reduce the kind of the, the momentum. And right now we're working on a lot of momentum. We'll see where that takes us. But there are different things that could stop or pause or halt or shift momentum along the way. Um, so I agree with you that we have to people like us and people in power and people who have platforms have to continue to support these guys as they continue to push forward. Because it's not just about, oh, freedom of speech. It's also about do you harbor certain beliefs? And if you harbor those beliefs, then you shouldn't be coaching these guys or leading the, this organization or so on and so forth. So Yep, yep. More, and- and 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 like you said, in, in sports specifically, why it's important and specifically with this issue, mm-hmm. why the players are so important. We live in a country where majority rules, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the landscape of most football, basketball teams, they're predominantly black Americans. Mm-hmm. So you have to take this opportunity and you, you touched on the power and value of football. Mm-hmm. So if you guys want us to play football, for you and entertain you and, and, and help all these people, then use our platform. We're going to use our platform to make sure other people who look like me can benefit and, and, and changes happens for them as well, which is very powerful. Right? Absolutely. Let me ask you one last question before we wrap up news and notes. Um, Roger Goodell 
came out this week and essentially, you know, I don't know if he tweeted or, uh, but essentially put out a statement encouraging NFL teams to kind of look at and sign Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> what, are you, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, well, no, it doesn't surprise. Understanding how America works, it doesn't mm-hmm. surprise. Right, mm-hmm. you read the tea leaves and you follow them. Yeah, right. And the tea leaves are saying right now, and which is a great thing. This is the side of this thing that you need to be on. It's like follow the money, right? Yeah. It's almost the same yeah. same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the side that we need to be on. Mm-hmm. And and just saying, oh, a team needs to sign them. That's that's not helpful, Roger mm-hmm. Goodell. Roger Goodell, come out and say, look, the NFL has made very very bad mistakes in this area of social change. Mm-hmm. How we handled the Colin Kaepernick situation was not the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically Kaepernick, not just the general yeah, sweeping statement. Yeah, you have yeah. to mention him specifically. Yes, specifically Kaepernick. And and say, oh, it's almost like he's he's <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just hilarious to me and just shows you like how people think and work. And what worries me too is like who cares how the change happens as long as it happens, right? Mm-hmm. But it 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 does kind of give me pause and and make me concerned about the authenticity, not just the NFL, but these big corporations. You've had mm-hmm. hundreds of years to say something about these issues. Yeah. Suddenly now you care about it, which well, well, you know, and we talked about this in many other contexts before. People don't people respond to pressure. That's what only yeah. thing people really respond to. If there's no pressure. You know, people aren't responding, even around the house. If I'm not like, you know, if my wife is not like, yo, we got to clean up, then, you know, I'm probably not going to clean up that day. I mean, that's just the way things go. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. And it obviously has a totally different level of consequences when you're in certain positions. Um, But that's the reality. And that's, again, you know, I keep circling back to this because I feel like it's even becoming clearer for me the more I even talk about it out loud, which is I really understand those NBA players' stance because, the pressure is why people are responding the way they are. The, what is the pressure? The pressure is constantly people tweeting, constantly people protesting, constant you know, uh, fear of riots, constant, constant pressure just like through society that you better be on this side of this thing. And that thing needs to be sustained because we've seen small glimpses of stuff like this, maybe not to this level, but we've seen small glimpses of stuff like this before and protests. I've protested before. Eric Garner's death, other situations. And then it kind of dies out. And, you know, a few things here happen, a few things there happen. And then it kind of dies out and we go back to normal. And I think that I understand generally the fear that anybody has now, especially people who are fighting for change, of things going back to normal. That's that. And, and that's what we rely on right now, right? Is our country is at a crossroads mm-hmm. right now. And we all have to understand that we're at a crossroads right now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of division. There are a lot of issues. We have a pandemic going on. Um, we have s- social rights issues. Mm-hmm. We have police brutality issues. And they're all happening at the same time, right? And mm-hmm. as citizens, we're making our voices heard. And Dave Chappelle said this in his 846 um, uh, documentary in which he, he went off on, on, on Don Lemon calling him out, like, mm-hmm. right? the country needs to pay attention to the its citizens and the mm-hmm. citizens are doing what they can. They don't know right. how to solve all these problems. Right. So if you're Joe Biden, if you're running for Senate, if you're running for Congress, what is your specific plan to ease 
the tensions that are happening in our country. Mm-hmm. Broadcast it. Get on TV every single day and tell us the people what you're going to do because I respect the hell out of these protesters because they're putting their lives at risk for this. That mm-hmm. better not get fucking wasted by the people in power. And yeah. that's why things die out is because the action isn't taken by the people who know how to take action. So that's what I'm, that's, that's, you yeah. know, not to, yeah. to, to strike too far off, but no. that's, that's really, these well, players think, are doing it too. Yeah. And I think the you know, the, the underlying thing now is, you know, for people who are fighting, keep fighting. Right. And I think you and I would, would agree to that. Right. Keep, keep fighting, keep doing what you're doing, whatever it is that's in your heart, that's telling you what you should do. You should do it, you know, and, and, you know, there are a lot of people out here that are, that support you. And, you know, that's what I would encourage a young person or an, an older person or whatever is literally whatever your heart is telling you to do, do it. If you don't know where to, you know, what to do, there are tons of resources out there. Um, so I'm interested in seeing how a lot of these different things play out. Obviously, you and I are um, heavily involved. Um, you know, I obviously just got appointed to that the Big Ten Anti-Hate, Anti-Racism Commission. That's a, a big, a big step that we're seeing in sports. We'll probably see other you know, conferences do stuff like that. But we got to keep the pressure on generally um, people who are fighting for these issues. And we do have to make sure it's our responsibility to make sure that people don't get distracted. So um, that's all we have for news and notes. Thank you for listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Shout out to Premier Podcast for getting us set up with our podcast during this quarantine period. Make sure you guys check them out for all of your podcast needs at premierpodcast.com. And make sure you check them out on social media at Premier Podcast. That's all we have for today's show. Big thanks to our guest, Albert Breer. Thanks to everybody for listening. Don't forget, sharing is caring. Subscribe to the Pilot Boys podcast on Apple, Spotify, Patreon, and YouTube. And please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechadon Music and V is at The Swamp. Don't forget to grab some Pilot Boys wristbands at shop.pilotboys.com. Always remember, be you. You is fly. Pilot Boys out. Pilot Boys, we get on up.